Hello, this is a Bicom podcast. I'm Richard Pater, the director of Bicom, and I'm based here in Jerusalem. And I'm really happy to be joined today by my former colleague, Dr. Toby Green. Um, not only is he a former head of research at Bicom and uh, previously a lecturer at Hebrew University, he has spent the last year as a research fellow at Queen Mary's University in London. And you're joining me in London at the moment before you come back to take up a, uh, a lectureship position at Barilan University next year. Toby, thank you very much for joining me. My pleasure. Very good to be speaking to speaking with you. And I'd also say that he is also the author of the, of the book, Blair, Labour and Palestine, Conflicting Views of the Middle East Peace After 9-11. And we may get to touch on some, uh, some um, UK Labour Party issues uh, during the conversation. Um, but I would like to, to start off, I saw you published last week a response to, uh, to Peter Beinart's uh, claims over Zionism. And, and I'd just love to, for those that haven't read the article, if you could sum that up and kind of assess state your, your position and response to, to his argument. Uh, yeah, with pleasure. So um, what uh, Peter Baynard uh, wrote a long essay um, in an uh, um, American journal a few weeks ago, um, writing from, the, from his perspective as a, a liberal Zionist, a, a diaspora Jew living in America, you know, American uh, Jewish liberal uh, Zionist who was a longtime supporter of a two-state solution as a way of resolving the conflict between Israelis and Palestinians, declaring that he had now given up on a two-state solution, uh, that that's now not a possible uh, solution, and uh, declaring that instead the new goal should be that of a, uh, a single state, a binational state, um, which would encompass all of the territory uh, that's currently Israel, West Bank, uh, and the Gaza Strip. And that should be the new political goal for uh, liberal Zionists. And I have argued, and, and many others have argued, um, that this uh, claim of this uh, position is utterly detached from uh, the political reality on the ground, that in fact, a um, binational state is as close a thing to a political impossibility as one can imagine if you're familiar with the political realities uh, in Israel and the Palestinian territories. And I guess my position is kind of the Sherlock Holmes position, that once you've eliminated the impossible, then the improbable uh, is what you're left with. And um, reaching a two-state solution um, may look challenging and improbable from where we are right now, and there are many challenges to reaching a two-state solution, but um, given that every other option for resolving the conflict or achieving some kind of legitimate political order accepted as legitimate by critical mass of both Israelis and Palestinians, every other option looks as close to impossible as one can imagine, then the two-state solution is what we're left with. And further than that, I would argue that it's not as improbable uh, um, to reach as some of its detractors like Peter Baynard claim. So if I can just push you on that kind of that, that, that conclusion, what would, you, what would you kind of be recommending policy guidelines to, uh, to, to move it forward at this stage? The, the, the way to push forward, I think, at this stage uh, is, on, is on two fronts. One is on the kind of vision side of things. So there is, um, it, it is true to say that the um, model of a two-state solution faces some significant problems. Um, we have a legacy of failure of past negotiations we have a, a, a deepening distrust um, bet between um, uh, the two sides, um, a, a, a decline in faith in the two-state solution among Israelis and Palestinians, though it still remains, and this is very important, the, 
the preferred option among uh, a plurality or even close to a majority of Israelis and Palestinians still prefer the two-state solution over any other option. That's a very, very important uh, fact. But nonetheless, um, faith in the ability to achieve it has declined. And we have some practical difficulties on the ground, um, including the growth of the settlement population in parts of the West Bank where a Palestinian state uh, uh, would be in a future agreement. So there is a need to update the vision of the end game, and that might involve some more creative approaches to how a future Israel-Palestine relationship would look. Um, some special arrangements, for example, that would allow sharing of certain competencies that might allow special residency rights for citizens of each state in the other state that might uh, um, remove the need for having to move settlement populations that might create some scope for some Palestinians to live in Israel. So there are lots of creative ideas that can address some of the practical difficulties around borders and security and settlements um, that uh, that have a, a cause trouble for the two-state solution and which create practical difficulties um, on the ground. But it has to be on the basis of two sovereign states that meet the respective needs of Jews and, and, and Palestinians for national self-determination um, and two states that then, ha then have some kind of special relationship. So there, are, there is a, um, a job to do to kind of update the vision of the end game. But the practical steps on the ground right now should be about advancing towards a two-state reality through practical steps on the ground in the direction of separating um, Israel from um, uh, the Palestinian territories in the West Bank. So expanding the, the footprint of the Palestinian Authority control, expanding the scope of its control, and moving the Palestinian Authority more in the direction of being a functioning sovereign state um, in the West Bank. That has to be done at this stage in piecemeal steps and small steps because the political reality does not uh, favor at the moment any attempt to try and reach a conflict ending final status agreement. But Israel certainly being the stronger power at this point has the capability to help the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank move in the direction of a, of a state um, and uh, lots of practical ways to do that. Um, and that so it's those two things, update the vision of the end game, look for practical steps on the ground that can advance towards a two-state reality. Thank you. So actually, I mean, there are some practical steps um, in, the, in, in the Trump plan and kind of, again, some of, the, some of this stuff is not new about creating uh, either bypass roads and bridges and stuff to keep kind of territorial contiguity together. And as you say, of kind of squaring the search for keeping some of the, uh, some, some of the settlements uh, in place as well. Um, do, you, do, you, do you see any merits in the Trump plan? So the Trump plan is a very interesting document that's trying to reconcile two irreconcilable missions. One is um, a genuine attempt. You can see if you read the document, the genuine attempt to, to, to do some serious thinking about what building a Palestinian state in the West Bank would mean in practical terms, given all of the um, uh, restrictions and Israeli concerns around that. But the other thing it's trying to do is avoid doing anything that crosses red lines or upsets the Israeli right as represented by the position of uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu. And those two things are not reconcilable um, because the key missing ingredient here is some level of legitimacy. For a solution to bring peace, it has to have a basic um, measure of legitimacy for a critical mass of Jews and uh, Arabs in the territory, Jews and Palestinians at the same time. And the Trump version 
although it has some interesting practical solutions about how to resolve some practical problems on the ground, is not going to get anywhere near meeting the threshold of legitimacy for the Palestinians in terms of the scope or the size or the footprint or the actual measure of independence of the state that's being uh, that's being proposed. So it's going to fall well short and also the international community is going to fall well short for the international community as well um, and so th there's there's no that's why the Trump plan is is not really have it does not really have any chance of uh, bringing peace even though it may have some interesting practical uh, proposals uh, woven into it. You know the 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 the, the basic framework of the Palestinian state that's going to be, in order to secure legitimacy, uh, has to have a, a much um, a more generous uh, offer for the Palestinians than that very limited uh, territorial and sort of independent scope that, that's written into the Trump plan. You mentioned the international community. Um, I mean, do you ever see a role? I mean, let's if we if we, if we kind of narrow down the international community to the uh, to, to the European powers. Do you see them having any traction and any any constructive role to play in uh, in in future peace process between Israel and the Palestinians? I think certainly for the Europeans, I've spent some time thinking and, and looking at the European political attitudes towards Israel and the Israeli-Palestinian arena. The EU has a long long had a perpetual difficulty in really um, making its, its potential weight come to play in the Israeli-Palestinian arena because um, the member states of the European Union are, 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 have difficulty unifying around a clear path on the Israeli-Palestinian arena. They tend to spread themselves on a spectrum of more supportive towards um, Palestinian positions and more supportive towards Israeli positions and, uh, and they have difficulty um, reaching a unified, uh, a unified posture. But I think there are obviously moves um, within the European Union, particularly around annexation or the Prime Minister Netanyahu's proposals to annex chunks of the West Bank to ramp up pressure on Israel. The EU, for the reasons I've just described, has difficulty doing that. It can't unify around a clear position. What I think the Europeans tend to miss, or the EU as a whole misses as a trick, is its potential to offer incentives to Israel which really account for something in Israeli society. So, for example, in the past, they've sort of tried to incentivize Israel and the Palestinians to move towards peace by offering, you know, what they call a special privileged partnership, you know, a really super duper upgraded, integrated deal with the European Union. But that's not really, you know, that's not a deal maker for the Israeli public. What do Israelis really care about? What sort of incentives could change the dial in Israeli public opinion? Israelis want the world to recognize that Jerusalem is the capital of Israel. They want the world to recognize that Israel is the nation state of the Jewish people. They want the world to recognize that the major settlement blocks, those that sit close to the green line, are going to remain part of Israel in a future negotiated agreement as part of some kind of territorial swap where the Palestinians get some, some land in return. They want to see European states unify uh, around uh, an absolute opposition to the BDS movement, to the boycott movement. You know, if the European Union were able to find ways to bring these issues into play, um, these are things that Israelis really care about. Um, and if the, you know, and uh, if, um, and, and these are tools that the European Union could potentially use to incentivize Israel to recommit to a uh, two-state solution on on meaningful, achievable terms—terms terms that would have uh, that would meet a minimum threshold for for 
for the Palestinians. So I think the EU ought to think more about how it can utilize those carrots um, to get Israel to recommit to a, a serious two-state solution alongside its kind of threats and its, its uh, sticks. And do you think the, um, the European Union as a, as a body as well, I mean, how would you, how do you, how do you assess their, their relationship kind of on a, directly with Israel or kind of, is it, is it all kind of tied up in the framing between Israel and the, and, and the Palestinian question? Or, um, or how would you assess kind of the, I don't want to call it bilateral relations, but kind of the direct relations between the EU and Israel. And of course, I know that you've, uh, you've also uh, written on this, uh, on this subject recently as well. Yes, so um, contrary to a lot of what you hear, certainly from the Israeli right, um, the institutional relationship between the European Union and the State of Israel is actually very deep and very strong. Israel has an um, uh, exceptional level of access and integration to the EU's markets and institutions for a non-European non-European state. And the deepening of integration has actually continued even whilst the Europeans have become, or let's say the liberal European mainstream, have become increasingly frustrated with the Israeli government with respect to its policies uh, in the Palestinian arena. So think, for example, of the Open Skies Agreement that was signed in 2013, and there are other examples as well. So although in theory, major upgrade in the relationship between Israel and the EU is kind of on hold because the European Union isn't happy with uh, Israel, the you know, sort of intransigence of the Israeli government on the Palestinian question. In reality, the the the, the deepening of the relationship has, has continued step uh, step by step, and Israel benefits um, enormously from that. Even whilst the Israeli right and Netanyahu like to use the EU as a punching bag and claim that it's anti-Israel and all of that, that's this kind of mythology. What is interesting, I think, and that's been a subject of my own uh, recent research, is the complex ways in which European attitudes or let's say attitudes towards Israel are changing among European uh, political camps and European political parties. Because, so people may well be aware that there is a kind of movement on, let's say, on the European left that's sort of hostile towards Israel. And you mentioned the Labour Party earlier. And of course, we've seen certainly the radical left in Europe very hostile to Israel and, and part of a um, coalition of various actors promoting anti-Israel uh, um, boycott movements and, and all the rest of it. What people may be less aware of is a contrary movement on the radical right uh, in Europe. What we've seen on the radical right, which used to be more typically anti-Semitic and indeed anti-Zionist, they would once typically have seen Israel as kind of an ally to American power and, and uh, in the region or, uh, you know, an extension of kind of Jewish world power, uh, you know, these kind of anti-Semitic um, uh, and anti-American notions. Now what you typically find or more typically find on the radical right in Europe is a, um, a desire to, or an agenda to display affection and warmth towards Israel um, as um, Europe's front line in a wider battle against the threat of radical Islam. And you, what you tend to find, increasingly find on the European radical right is a framing of the values or the consensus values that underpin uh, European culture as something what they call Judeo-Christian, this idea of a Judeo-Christian uh, civilization. And that, that, that sort of draws Israel inside the kind of European cultural boundaries. And the idea is twofold. Firstly, they want to distance themselves from any uh, suspicions or associations with anti-Semitism, which are politically toxic, but also they want to underline the, um, the, 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 uh, the in their view, Europe's culture is, uh, excludes 
uh, Islam in particular among other non-European uh, European cultures. So this notion of a, Europe as Judeo-Christian, and that includes Israel as sort of part of the European cultural space, has sort of uh, gained ground on, on, on the radical right, and they're keen frequently to display their their um, uh, their warmth towards Israel. Very interesting. Um, if we turn our attention just for the last couple of questions to kind of to the to the UK, how do you assess at the moment? I mean, you've you've been in London for the for the last year or so. Um, what perspective has that given you on uh, on broader uh, Britain-Israel bilateral relations? Britain, of course, is going through its own uh, major uh, political upheavals and political crisis. The overwhelming focus sort of pre-coronavirus in the first six months I was here, I arrived here in the summer of 2019, was that, you know, the deep Brexit crisis, which we've all stopped thinking about in the UK right now because Brexit happened, there was a general election, you know, Brexit has happened in a formal sense, although not in a practical sense yet. And then coronavirus came along and it knocked Brexit off the, off the agenda. So Britain has been overwhelmed by its own uh, um, political crisis. And that crisis is going to resume over the next six months um, as Brexit comes back onto the agenda because the transition period is going to come to an end. In that context, you know, Britain has its own priorities, which is to you know, establish its, its, its broader diplomatic and trading relations as a, as a nation that sits outside of the EU. And uh, we've seen that, you know, Israel is perceived to be a, um, you know, a valuable uh, economic uh, and uh, strategic partner and one that has the potential to grow. So, you know, economic and strategic partners that sit outside of the European Union with growth potential are, you know, are of value to the UK right now. And I think that underpins a lot of how mm. the British government looks at uh, uh, looks at Israel. And of course, we have a very strong conservative majority government in in, in um in Britain right now, and the Conservative Party, the, the mainstream or the, the centre ground of the Conservative Party is broadly quite sympathetic to Israel, certainly in sharp contrast to uh, where the centre ground of the Labour Party sits right now. So if I can ask just the last question exactly on that, of where, where, do, you, where do you assess the, 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 Labour, the Labour Party at the moment uh, with regards to relations to, uh, to, to Israel? Um, and 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 what what do you make of the the relatively new leadership uh, that the party is under? Well, I mean, you mentioned that I wrote I you know I wrote a PhD thesis about which I published as a book in 2013, the Labour and Palestine about the British Labour mm. Party and the Israeli-Palestinian arena. And I one of the themes of my book was the way in which uh, the Israeli-Palestinian question is a kind of proxy for internal battles within within the Labour Party. Um, you know. I looked at the period when Blair was leading the party and he kind of represented the modernizing wing, which was also um, much more sympathetic towards Israel than the sort of uh, left of the um, of the party. But even I, having studied the subject, could never have imagined the way in which this issue would drive a rift deep into the heart of the party, because I could not have imagined that the radical left um, subsumed as it is with uh, um, anti-Zionism, uh, and um, at times anti-Semitism could actually come to lead the party. We're now in the aftermath of the Corbyn period as leader of the Labour Party. Um, that was a devastating period for the Labour Party. It left the party in its weakest state electorally um, for, for generations. And the party is now in a period of, of recovery. And that includes trying to heal its internal rifts, which is very difficult to do, and trying to put behind it this very, very politically damaging um, uh, perception of its anti-Semitism. Keir Starmer, its new leader, 
is showing every sign that he understands that um, part of rebuilding the party means drawing a line under this uh, under this issue. Um, he recently uh, sacked uh, Rebecca Long Bailey, who was sort of seen as the keeper of the Corbynite flame in the shadow cabinet, because of her, she endorsed an interview given by an actress, one of her constituents, which parroted um, uh, a um, uh, an anti-Semitic conspiracy theory theory relating to the idea that Israeli police had trained, you know, American police how to, you know, oppress African Americans. An, an absurd claim that she, that uh, uh, Long Bailey endorsed. And then because Starmer was not satisfied with the speed and the uh, and the manner of, of her sort of apology and retraction, he sacked her very swiftly. And this has sent a clear signal, I think, of Keir Starmer's intent to draw a line under this issue. There is, an, you know, the Labour Party is also settling this week um, a court case in which some of its former uh, um, officials have been suing the party uh, again. Uh, over the anti-Semitism issue. There was a meeting reported this week between Keir Starmer and the Labour Friends of Israel group. So you can see a series of steps that the new leadership is taking to try and fix the terrible damage done by the controversy over anti-Semitism in the Labour Party. And from the perspective of the British Jewish community, I think this is, this is moving in a positive, uh, a positive direction. But I guess we know that under the surface, the attitudes that um, the Corbyn leadership exposed and mushroom under the Corbyn leadership among the activist base of the Labour Party um, won't disappear overnight. And uh, we have a, a, you know, it's a long term challenge to try and um, deal with the, uh, uh, the very troubling expressions of anti-Semitism that became all too common and were in the Labour Party under Corbyn. Indeed. Well, Toby, thank you very much indeed. And we wish you every success uh, as you come back to Israel uh, later this year. And we look forward to, to catching up with you here. Thank you my for joining me great, today. My very great pleasure. Thank you.